Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. It's a humbling experience this morning to preach out of my natural habitat. And to be reminded of how unimportant I am because standing behind me is another preacher whom God has used in the past, and if I don't do my job, he's liable to. I'm also told I bear an uncanny resemblance to the nature of such ministers when the need arises. So I shall endeavor to do my best with the scriptures this morning so that he can keep his mouth shut. We're taking a detour for the next several weeks leading up to the Christmas holiday. We'll be looking at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And so let me begin by reading verses 1 to 17 this morning from the Word of God. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of, father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, we ask you this morning to enliven our minds, to illumine our understanding of what it is that this passage is so clearly communicating to us. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, strip away the carnality of our minds that might be tempted to look at this as tedious and insignificant. Rather, Father, cause us to see the glory of your grace and your sovereign hand manifest in these ways as we will discuss in the weeks to come evidenced here in this genealogy. May Christ be magnified more this Christmas than he has been before because we understand what you have done to bring him to us. May history come alive to us as the story of our Savior, who sovereignly and graciously guides all things for the redemption of his people. And Father, may we leave here full and overflowing to gratitude, awe, and worship of you for all that we have seen. And we ask this all for the sake of Jesus, the point of this passage and all others. And for his sake alone. Amen. Most people, I think I am safe in saying, have at least some fascination and interest in knowing where they came from. They have a, at least a superficial interest in their ancestors. Everyone that I know loves a good story about your family. Good bad or indifferent. We enjoy hearing stories about our families, our ancestors in the past. It, it connects us to something larger than ourselves. Would you agree with that? We, we enjoy that, and, and I think proof of that is that there is an entire industry today that has arisen with the advent of the internet that has made the searching of records more accessible that you can go and learn all about your family from the comfort of your living room. I remember as a, a boy growing up, I had an aunt who, she and her husband literally traveled all over the United States and even Europe, going to libraries and courthouses and other places that retained records just to find out where we came from. I'm not sure we know today. But now you can do it from your home. Why? People are interested. They love a good story, and they, they love a good story that involves their families. Why is it then that when we come to passages like Matthew 1, that, that contains a genealogy of a biblical family, or to books like Chronicles, or other genealogies in Scripture, that we tend to just kind of glaze over. Why is it that these hold such little value or interest to us? Well, before us sits one of those texts. And maybe it's not as 
prone to dull your mind as others might be, because after all, it is part of the Christmas story. But before us, it's not just a list of names this morning. I want you to know that. I want you to leave with the conviction and the joy that what sits before you in Matthew 1, 1 to 17, is not just a list of names. This is the greatest story that has ever been told. This is not just a genealogy. This is a story. And it is the single greatest story that has ever been told or will ever be told in the history of humanity. It is a story of kings, of gentlemen, of patriarchs, and yet of murderers and outcasts, of conquest and loss. But most importantly, it is a story of redemption. It's a story of miracle upon miracle unfolded in the lives of these people. They can be summed up with one overarching miracle, and that is this. God has come near. Into the swamp of your sin, into the wreckage of rebellion, and into the depths of man's depravity, God himself has come. He has come near, and he did not come near in an ethereal way, in some mystical way. He came near in the very person of his Son to save sinners, that he might be glorified. And he does it through human means and through human genealogy and through human story. And so as we begin our time in these verses over the next few weeks, it's important that we thoroughly examine what God inspired. And don't forget, this is inspired as much as any other portion of Scripture. Without fail, without error, without fallibility, perfectly inspired by God, He wants it here. It's been preserved for us. It's important that we thoroughly examine this to see what God is communicating through these lives, these names, these people. And I hope to do that in three ways, and let me give those to you now. This morning, I want to begin begin by looking at the king who has come. The second major theme communicated in this list is this, that a Savior has come. And the third thing that we will see two weeks from today, Lord willing, is this, that the promise of God has come. A king, a savior, and a promise are all highlighted in various ways that we are to focus upon in this genealogy. And so we begin this morning simply with verse 1. We read this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. This verse, verse 1, functions as something of a prologue to everything else that will follow, not only in our brief little series here in the first 17 verses, but for the rest of the gospel. 
Grant Osborne says in his commentary that verse 1 is to tell the reader and the rest of this genealogy is to tell the reader who Jesus really is. And the rest of this gospel and every other gospel is to prove that assertion. This tells us who the Christ is. And so as Matthew opens up, Matthew writes with a perspective that he wants you to know chiefly and foremost from verse 1 that Jesus is king and that the king has come. He is here. And we begin by looking at the king's lineage. And so before we get into the details of verse 1 as focused and specific, I think it's helpful for you to understand how this entire 17-verse passage functions. And so let's talk for just a moment, if you will indulge me, about genealogies. And you may be thinking, well, I didn't really come to church to hear about genealogies. But you'll be glad you did. Because genealogies communicate. Genealogies communicate in a variety of ways. One of the ways in which they do that are by the types of genealogies. Now, how many of you understand this morning sitting here that there are multiple types of genealogies in Scripture, and each one, each type, with its own unique characteristics, communicates something different. How many of you have actually done the hard work to find that out? Wow. Right? It's not something we normally think about. It's not something that normally catches our attention, but it is true. Genealogies are not just names. They're not just lists. They are bodies of inspired scripture that are strategically created to communicate certain truths, and it's done in a number of ways. How many people are in that genealogy? The number matters. How are they grouped together? If you'll look down at verse 17, we're told that this genealogy has something about it that we need to recognize. It's grouped in three groups of how many? Fourteen. There's, there's significance to that. Where key people's names are placed in the genealogy, etc., etc. It all communicates great truths that, that we are far too quick to read over and to pass over. They also communicate by the order in which they are written. Some communicate by ascending order, others create by descending order. And depending on the point you wish to make, you choose one of those styles to emphasize what it is you wish to say. Other genealogies are known as vertical or horizontal genealogies. Horizontal genealogies reads like courthouse records. There's nothing necessarily important about every name in there. In fact, everybody in the list seems to be fairly equal as to their importance in the story. But then there are vertical genealogies, such as the one before you in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, that is meant to show authority, hierarchy, structure, sovereignty, that someone in this list is not like the others. Is it any surprise then that Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that type of genealogy to talk about Jesus. 
should cause no surprise to us that these 17 verses are a vertical descending genealogy so that we can clearly understand that Jesus Christ is the name above every other name in this list. That Jesus the Christ is the king of all kings. That Jesus the Christ is the greatest priest of all priests. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final prophet of all prophets. Jesus Christ stands alone as unique. He is the royal head of this family lineage. Their names exist in this list to exalt his name. They are not the point. He is the point. Then there's the necessity of genealogies. They are necessary. Now for us, they're a novelty. They're a luxury. Outside of maybe a few legal matters in life that you would incur, such as maybe the death of a loved one where you have to go down and you have to prove a certain relation to that person so that you can uh, enact the will, so on and so forth. We use genealogies in our lives, in our culture, very rarely, extremely rare. But in the biblical days, of the New Testament, in biblical Israel, in Jesus' time, genealogies were essential. And when I say essential, I mean essential. You literally could not function in society without one. It determined where you lived. If you go to Numbers 34, 13, so Moses commanded the sons of Israel saying, this is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as possession, which the Lord has commanded to give the nine and a half tribes. You could only live in a certain area in the Old Testament if your tribe that you had descended from was granted rights to that land. God divided the nation, and you didn't just live wherever you want. You were assigned by birth. You had to prove your genealogy in order to live in a certain place. It determined what you were able to do. It's, it's not like ministry today where God calls men from all different walks of life and different families and whatever to, to serve him in ministry in a vocational way. You had to be born into ministry. If you were not a Levite, you weren't going to be a priest. In Ezra 2, 61 and 62, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Berzali, who took a wife from the daughters of Berzali, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. So they searched among their ancestral registration. Tuck that term away. Searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. Hey, we want to be a priest. Great, show me your Levitical heritage. Well, we, we really can't. Then you can't be a priest. In Israel today, it's still there are still remnants of this, even though there are no genealogies that exist. You have to be able to prove certain things to serve in certain arenas of the Israeli military. 
your parents and you were not born in the confines of the borders of Israel, you cannot serve in their special forces. They check those things. You cannot be a man of Jewish descent, even though you may be 100% Jewish, born in the Bronx and go to Israel and serve there. You just can't. They have to be able to prove a pedigree. It would determine what you were able to inherit. If you go to Ruth 4, you'll remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, and there is a kinsman redeemer who has a right to buy the land before Boaz does. And, and it has to be proven that Boaz is the second in line, the next kinsman redeemer when the first renegs. It determined what you were able to own, what land you could inherit. It would determine who you could marry. It would determine how you interacted in society. Genealogies were everything to these people. It was their key to life. And you were not only committed to memory in many cases, but the temple held record upon record upon record of all these things so that it could be verified. But there's something unique about these 17 verses in light of the genealogies and their cultural importance in Jesus' day. And here it is. This is the final genealogy ever given that proves the birth of the Messiah. That proves who the Messiah was. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 4, it makes it all the more significant then, understanding that genealogies are important, that Joseph and Mary go to register. They go to, we think, we read that passage in Luke 2, oh, they took a census, yeah, we do that here. The guy comes to your door and he says, how many people live here? You know, other questions I refuse to answer, um, certain things, you know, they want to know. Okay, big deal. But Jesus and his earthly father by adoption and his mother go up from Galilee, Luke 2, 4, to the, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. They go to where they are from. They go to where their genealogy takes them, and they register so that there is official documentation as to who they are, how many they are, what children have been born to them. You say, well, then, Brian, why did you say this was the final list? It sounds like, according to Luke 2, that this is something that was done often. And it was until AD 70. In AD 70, when the Roman armies laid siege to the temple in Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, utterly destroyed the temple with all of its records. With, with every one of those genealogies that were so uh, esteemed by the Jewish people, they were all destroyed. That's why you cannot ask a Jewish person today what tribe they belong to. They can't tell you. Those records have been lost. A few years ago, I, I was doing some research into both of my grandfather's military histories, and I wrote to the Department of Veteran Affairs and asked for copies of their records to be given to me, and I was told that 
One of my grandfathers they could, and one of my grandfathers they could not because there had been a fire in the records building in St. Louis back in the 1970s and burned almost a third of all service member records from World War II. And so we can tell you that he served, but that's all we can tell you. There are no specifics to his documentation. The same is true with the nation of Israel in AD 70. All of those records are destroyed. Look at this so that this list is one of the last, and it is the last that traces Jesus. No one else could come along after Jesus and say, I am the Messiah, for the simple reason is there are no genealogies to prove who you came from. You cannot tell us you are the Messiah because you have no familial proof. Matthew 1 and Luke 2 then function as the last that mention Jesus and that mention a direct line meeting all qualifications back to David. The royal beginning of this line. Jesus is the last authoritative claimant to the throne of David. Mark that down. Academically, genealogically, no one will ever be able to claim to be the Messiah outside of Jesus because the records do not exist for them to be able to do so. What does that say about all the people today that pop up from time to time and say, oh, I'm the Messiah? You've really got problems if you're saying that today. Jesus in these genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 2 prove that he is the royal son of Joseph by adoption, that he is the biological and legal son of Mary by the Holy Spirit linked directly to David's throne by both his adopted father and his biological mother. Jesus has claims on David's throne. No one before this list qualifies. No one after it can qualify because it is simply not provable. Isn't that a sad reality? As we look at the Jewish religion that today says they are still waiting on the Messiah and yet they deny their own Old Testament, they deny their own covenants, they deny what they say they believe about David, that it would have to be provable that he comes from David's lineage, and yet they will not recognize Jesus, the last one to be able to do that. They say, we're still waiting on him to come. And what do you think you're going to do when he supposedly shows up? You won't even be able to prove it. What a tragedy it is for them. So now we jump into verse 1 with its specifics and seeing again that it is the king who has come that is being communicated in this list and I want you to understand that there is great irony in this and I want you to see that this irony is intended by the Holy Spirit so that Christ is exalted more and more to us it is a technical perspective that we begin with look at verse 1 the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, for all of you grammar Nazis here, what is not present in verse 1? 
What part of speech is not represented here? The verb. These are all nouns. You try writing a sentence like this, kids, in school, your teacher's going to have something to say to you. This is just gibberish to you. You've got to have a verb, but not this verse. It has no definite articles. It's really an anomaly in the scope of Scripture, but it communicates in a very staccato fashion. Record, genealogy, Jesus, David, Abraham. This is what you are to focus on. It starts with a very familiar term. This is a record of the beginning. It seems we've heard that there's another book in the Bible who bears the same name, the beginning. What book would that be? The book of Genesis. And indeed, it is a transliteration of the word into the Greek that is literally the word Genesis that is used here, the genealogy, the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in the beginning. And so for Matthew, who is writing to a predominantly Jewish mind, he is writing in a way that immediately connects them to what he is saying. Because when we go back to the Old Testament, which is exactly where Matthew is taking them, Matthew takes them to a mindset that pictures God as supreme, of God as king. When we go to Genesis 1-1, we are left with the implication that there was nothing before this, right? In the beginning. Beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Jesus. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And what is important about that is that we are to understand that in matching the wording of Genesis, in matching the truth of Genesis, Matthew is communicating to us that something is about to come about, to come into being by divine fiat. By divine decree, just as it did in Genesis, something is about to appear on the stage that is impossible by man, only possible by God. Everything that appears after this is the work of the one who appears first, as the one who does the action. And so may I say to you, in Genesis 1.1, that we explain Genesis 1, 1 and 2, not primarily scientifically, but theologically. In the beginning, God. Does science matter? Absolutely. But it is not chief. The person is chief. The actor is chief. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the record of Jesus. His position in time, he is before everything else. In position of order, he comes before everyone else. In terms of cause, Jesus is the cause, just as God is the cause in Genesis 1.1. He possesses the chief status of everything that is going to follow. He is 
the creator. Now, you're scratching your head and you're going, wait a minute. Aren't genealogies meant to communicate something about offspring? Why are we laboring the point about the beginning of it rather than the end of it? And that again, brothers and sisters, is the glorious and miraculous nature of the irony that God has chosen to employ here. Most, if not all, genealogies in Scripture are named for the progenitor, not the offspring. And yet Jesus is both. He is both progenitor and offspring. This genealogy is named for him. Who at the end of verse 16 is named the Messiah. But wait a minute. He's also named as the source of it and the point of it in verse 1 as the Messiah. There is no other genealogy in scripture that does this. He occupies the first position and he occupies the last position. Now, just for a moment, let your mind scroll through your catalog of Scripture. Have we ever heard that before? Oh, I don't know, say maybe in the book of Revelation. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and I am the ending. As creator, everything that you see has followed me. As the God-man and the Messiah, who is descended from the very creation I made, I am supreme. I am the final and the ultimate. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, beginning and end. This is what is being communicated. By the mention of Jesus at the beginning and the end. Both named for him as progenitor and as offspring. A genealogy is an interesting thing. I want you to ponder this with me for a moment and and let your mind. We've said this recently in our men's Bible study on Friday mornings. Theology and a consideration of God is truly a mind-bending exercise. He's incomprehensible by finite means. So let your mind be bent this morning. A genealogy consists of a list of those who have come before, does it not? Look down at your Bibles. We can look at all of these names, all these these three groups of 14 names in each one of them. And we see that one preceded the other. Can I ask you a question? How do you have a genealogy of someone for whom there was no one before them? That's what a genealogy is, isn't it? In part, it's showing who came before you, who came. How do you have a genealogy for God? You can't. God is preceded by no one. John 1, 1, in the beginning, there's that term again. Genesis, beginning, when there was nothing else, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the progenitor of everything. How then does he have beginning, genealogy, genesis? And that is not something we will humanly answer. There is no human answer for that. But there is a divine answer. Because God is not bound by the rules of nature or time. God can do whatever he wants. And so Jesus having genealogy has come about because God issued a divine decree. The one who has no beginning issues a divine decree and made a beginning for himself in his humanity but not his deity. God did this. God decreed that he would have a beginning as a man who is at the same time truly God and at the same time truly man to the point of having a decree. Who can do that? Only the God who is king of the universe and creates all things. Period. And so this list, this structure, these names are theologically rich because they point us to this miracle that God has wrought that his own son, who has no beginning and has no one before him, would actually have a genealogy. Mind-blowing. Jesus is both the head of all that follows and he is the end of all that follows. The Jewish people that Matthew is writing to that Jesus would interact with knew their Old Testaments well. And so this would sound familiar to them for the first genealogy occurs all the way back in their Torah. In the book of Genesis in chapter 5 verse 1, these are the generations of Adam. The beginnings of Adam and his offspring. When God created man, he made him in the likeness. And so as Matthew is writing this, they are hearing the same words they've heard about Adam. But it's not computing. This is mind-blowing to them. How could Messiah, who has no beginning, have a genealogy? It doesn't register he must then be king in order to accomplish something like this because the last time he did something like this was genesis 1 when he spoke everything out of nothing i want you to notice that not only does matthew frame it that way in verse 1 look at verse 17 in this genealogy, in this list, it's quite exciting, I think, to see how he does this. Notice how he frames it in a bookend fashion. You guys have bookends in your house, right? You know, the figurehead of a horse or a lion or something, and it's facing one end on this end of the book, and then the same head facing the other way on the other end of the book. And they mirror each other. Look how Matthew does this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, go to verse 17. 
to all the generations from Abraham to David to the Messiah. You see what he does? He mirrors that. He bookends it. He does this not because, oh man, I didn't realize I did that. Or this would be really fun to do it this way. He does this to emphasize Christ. He's beginning and he's end. This is his life from beginning to end. These are his people from beginning to end. This is his doing from beginning to end. There is no description, there, I'm sorry, there is no definitive article in verse 1 that in our English we have one. It says the Messiah, and they did that to smooth out the reading. But in the original language, there is no definite article. It is just Jesus Messiah. And that's how they spoke when they wanted to emphasize the position of someone rather than just a name. He is the King of Kings. He is the Messiah, the one you know as Jesus, he's Messiah. Might be how we would word that today. Jesus, Messiah, King. King of all. King forever. Never failing King. We get a sense of how important and precious this title is By the way, Matthew uses the term Christ, which is our way of transliterating the the Hebrew word Messiah. Matthew only uses the term Christ or Messiah 16 times in his gospel. Only 16 times. That's a big gospel. But he uses the word Jesus, the name Jesus, 150 times. It is the more common. And so, like a man of few words, when he does speak, you should listen. Do you know somebody like that? They don't say a lot, but when they say something, your ears had better be on. When, when Matthew speaks of the Christ, he, he does so so rarely, and, and it is so reserved for such precious communication of the position and the majesty of Jesus that we ought to take note. And here he uses it, not once, but twice. Verse 1 and verse 17. But he couples it with his other name, Messiah being his title, Jesus being his name. Jesus meaning God will save his people. So that in the term Messiah, He is the king who saves his people. And you'll get to this in a few verses in verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. His people. Not all people. His people. Now his people have a constituency among all the peoples of the realm, but his people. He is their king. And he has come to save them. He will save his people from their sins. 
He, why? Because he is Messiah. Jesus is his name describing what he does. Messiah is his station, his stately position. And he can be named as such because he is descended from the royal line. If you want to make note of this, you can go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes his covenant promises to David in verses 12 to 16. He says this to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Now, notice the the specificity. Your descendant. Not descendants. There's one who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. How many sons did David have? A lot. Numerous sons, right? None worthy to be king. Not in the way God intended for him to be king. Solomon, not happening. Absalom, not happening. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This must be an eternal king. That's not human. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul when I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Why? We will have a forever king. Your throne shall be established. And so when we read in verse 1 that he is the son of David, we understand that he is the eternal king that we have been waiting for from the days of David. This son does qualify for the throne. This son will meet the messianic expectation to free his people from their sin to rule and to reign in righteousness. The people of Israel were were and are grossly mistaken to think that their greatest enemy from which they need liberation is a human army. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Babylon. It's no one else is their sin. The dominion of the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who must be defeated. Human armies pale in comparison. The eternal death and hell that sin brings us to as our rightful punishment is the greatest thing to be overcome. Not an army. But they can't see that. Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness, and he does all throughout the Gospels. If this tells us who Jesus is, then the rest of the Gospels become about all the people who push back against Jesus, the Pharisees, the crowds. They don't like this Messiah. They thought they wanted the Messiah, but when the Messiah rules and reigns in righteousness as he does, we don't want it. 
And why don't they want it? You can find the answer in most of this list of names. You see this, to borrow from the future time in this text, this passage contains something other, past, or other genealogies rarely contain. Women. And not just women, Gentile women. And not just Gentile women, but Gentile women who look an awful lot like Proverbs 7. You telling me that that's righteous? You telling me that's how this Messiah works? We don't want it. You're telling me that this Messiah heals lame people on the Sabbath? We don't want it. But that's what righteousness looks like. This Messiah has come. And he is king of all. He is outside of time and the rules of nature. He, he wrote them. He's outside of human demands and expectations for the way it has to be. He is the apex of messianic power and force. He is the royal king who will free by divine power not only one kingdom, the kingdom of ethnic Israel, but all those around the world who have faith in them. How about that? I'm a global king. Their expectations are not only small, they're pathetically small. We want a Messiah for our little country. How about I give you one for the whole world? So that people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue will become your family. And he will rule the nations, not just one, all of them. Perfect. If I... I'm going to fulfill a promise I made thousands of years ago to Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth will be. How are they going to do that? Because of their king. Because of the king that comes forth from Abraham. He is a royal saving king. I want you to notice something about these 14, these three groups of 14 in verse 17. William Hendrickson wrote before he died that in, the, in David, the family of Abraham that was promised attained their royalty. At the deportation to Babylon mentioned in verse 17, this royal power was lost, but in Christ, it is restored. And not restored minimally, but in a far more glorious sense. They couldn't have imagined this king. That, that throne in Jerusalem, far too small. That temple, far too earthly and unglorious for this Messiah. No, he, he will rule and reign the world, for it is his. 
He was in the beginning. All things came from him. He is in the beginning here so that all of redemption and the summing up of all things will only come and could only come through him. The first group of 14 in verse 17 give us the origin of David's house. These are the OGs, as you kids would say, the originals. The second 14 begin to show us the decline of David's house. Solomon. Rehoboam. And on and on. The house is in decline. By the time we reach the third group of 14, the house of David is an absolute eclipse. So much so that we find the man by the name of Jeconiah. Whom God said in Jeremiah 22, no descendant of Jeconiah will sit on the throne. David, your line is over. The house of David is One greater than David. One greater than human genealogy alone. Comes on the scene. Because he is an heir to the throne of David. Not by the seed of Jeconiah. But by the adoption of Joseph. He's brought into the line. Bypassing the curse of Jeconiah. Through adoption, he has royal title. He has physical connection to David through Mary. So that on both his adopted father's side and his biological mother's side, Jesus has a right to that claim. No other person can do that. In fact, we could say that as far as the genealogies being destroyed in AD 70 and no one being able to prove it, it really ended with Jeconiah, humanly speaking. There would be no descendant after Jeconiah who could sit on David's throne. Unless he be born without an earthly father. I think we know someone who did that, don't we? We know someone of whom that is true. And now he is the royal king. He sits on the throne. When no one else could do it, Christ has. He is and he will be. So that the promise God makes in Isaiah 11 verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. When the, As Josh read in Isaiah 6, when it's been cut down, to nothing but a stump, don't fear. The holy seed is in the stump and it will rise. It won't be in a way you recognize it because the kingship of Jesus as the source of all things cannot be quantified by human methods or human reasoning or human ability. Paul quotes from that Isaiah passage in Romans 15. There shall come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him 
shall the Gentiles hope. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In Christ, in the King, will be found every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And we see a little bit of that here, don't we? Different languages, different cultures, different continents. We didn't do that. We weren't trying to do This is God at work. But yet we have one thing that we all share in common. Same king. Who has conquered our hearts. Who has dispatched with our sin. Who has made us one. So that all those other things don't matter. Christ matters. The king matters. And he is the king for all of the nations. What hope there is in this overcoming king. There are no hurdles before him. Only what looks like hurdles. He overcomes them all. Jumping forward, we understand just how recognized Jesus was as a king. You say, but I thought the people rejected him as a king. I, I, I thought nobody recognized, I thought nobody wanted him as king. How many infants, toddlers, do you know that a state visit from the Magi of the East, the Kings of the East? I know people came to see me when I was in the hospital, but it wasn't any king. But they came for Jesus. Other kings from afar came and bowed the knee. Your king, not us. The king in his own home country, understanding the threat, understanding that this had merit to it, in fear for his own little fiefdom, began to slaughter all the males Jesus' age. He knew. And he was threatened by it. All of the demons of hell who had infiltrated the people of Jesus' day, they knew. Remember that Jesus, when he arrives on the shore in Gadara in Mark chapter 5, the, the man who lived among the tombs cutting himself and the maniac of Gadara, Jesus doesn't go find him. He finds Jesus, or rather the demons in him. And what are their words to Jesus? What do we have to do with you before the time? They knew that he was king. What do you say about him? It's important to note those examples, but what do you say about this king? That's all that matters. I won't answer for you. The person sitting beside you will not answer for you. Your parents will not answer for you. You must bow the knee to King Jesus. You must believe the word about him that it is true. 
that he is the only Savior for your sin. You must confess him to be Lord. You must believe upon him. Apart from that, there is no hope. A hope of salvation, as we will see, so beautifully demonstrated next week in this genealogy by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a rich and sufficient word, a meal, a banquet, a feast, even as we consider this genealogy. May Christ have been honored. May Christ be lifted up in our thoughts as we consider these words. May they shake us from our slumber and our apathy to passages such as these. And may we rejoice in the kingly nature of Jesus the Messiah. May our hope be in him. May our confession be of him. May our lives be for him in all that we do. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who has stiffened their spine and refuse to bow their knee and do not yet believe. My prayer and my hope is that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Break them, Lord, and give them faith to believe all that your scripture tells us is true of you. May they find in this king this benevolent and all-gracious king, salvation from the tyranny of sin over them. May Christ become sweet to them, as he is to all who believe. And may we all with joy and with one voice for all eternity be able to gather together around your throne and give glory to God and the Because the king has come. And we ask this all, Jesus, for your eternal honor and glory.